Continuing our series uh, through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, we are almost there. We're in the last chapter this morning, Ephesians 6. Uh, we've called this series Grace, sorry, Ephesians Grace to Infinity and Beyond. That, that grace doesn't just God's loving kindness and this gift of salvation is not just for salvation, but it's for the way we live our lives. And so this morning, we're going to see a little bit more of that. And in fact, I'm going to give you two sermons for the price of one this morning. Which, uh, and I assure you, um, the elders did not promise they would pay me twice as much for two sermons this morning. In fact, if they'd known I was going to do this, they'd probably dock my salary for two sermons. <laughs> Please don't, Ryan. Um, but, but I'm doing this because in this brief passage from, from the Apostle Paul this morning, he addresses two groups of people. Two groups of people who are living under the same roof. And that is parents on the one hand and children on the other. So let's read what he has to say. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. Again, thanks for your patience with my voice this morning. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not... Provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. So, by the Roman law of patria potestas, the father, at this point in which time, when Paul is writing, the father had essentially life and death power, authority over his household. He, He could cast out his child. He could sell his child into slavery, a father could, or or worse. And to give you an idea of how even a child would enter this world, a newborn would be placed at a Roman father's feet. And if the father picked it up and held it, that means the newborn would be kept. If the father left it, the newborn would be disposed of. That is the context in which Paul writes So what was normal at that time was a household rife with both dominance on the one hand and fear on the other, right? Capricious fathers who upon a whim could change their mind and whatever they changed their mind to, that became iron law in the household. What do you think that did to the kids? Filled them with fear, right? Anything they would say, a child would be filled with fear to obey lest they face sometimes drastic consequences. That was normal. Capricious dominance, subservient fear, that was normal. What Paul envisions for the household of Christians then is wonderfully abnormal. We may look back at these verses and think, that seems kind of rigid. No, it was wonderfully abnormal. Paul challenges the status quo of parents and especially fathers, and he appeals to children to obey not out of fear but from the heart. Now, why is Paul doing this at this point in the letter? Why is he looking to parents and children? Well, big picture, we remember that the second half of this letter to the Ephesians is about how grace, God's love made active, not only saves us, but it transforms our lives so that we as Christians, as the church, look different from the world. Right? That that we are called to be light. We remember reading that in Ephesians 5. And that as we are continually filled with the Spirit, we do things like address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
we give thanks to the Lord for everything. Lord, we, we do things and we act in certain ways that's very different from the world so people might see and look to Jesus and give glory to him. So we noticed that was true of marriages. We looked at that over the past two weeks, that when God's grace ambushes a marriage, husbands and wives start to act differently towards one another. It's, it's true also then of families. Grace pushes us beyond the gift of birth and the actual relating that we do. And the love of Jesus makes a difference in households also. It makes a real difference in households. We're going to see that this morning. So I, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to first address parents this morning, and then a large portion of our Sunrise children are going to be joining us and sitting in the first couple rows. I'm grateful, and then I'm going to address the kids as well. So let's start with parents. And the first question to, to, to talk about here is we see in verse 4, Paul specifically addresses fathers. Why does he do that? Why fathers? Now, to be clear, Paul is also addressing parents. We see that in verse 1, right? Children, obey your parents. So he has parents in mind, and yet he kind of shines a spotlight here in verse 4 on fathers in particular, on dads. Why does he do that? Well, two reasons, I think. You may recall a couple weeks back, we saw that the role of a husband is that of a pioneer leader. Okay, that a husband first learns in his relationship with his wife, that God has given him this role to, to be a pioneer, to, to, to go first, to, to make a path, to take on all the cuts and scrapes and bruises and animal bites, to make a way safe for other people. So that's first true in his relationship with his, his wife, and then sometimes if God blesses him with a kid and the kid comes along, he learns to self-sacrifice even more, self-sacrificial leadership towards his children, to those who are completely dependent and starting their lives, completely needy. And a father's supposed to give his life for them. So Paul knows this. He addresses fathers. I think Paul also addresses fathers because fathers have their children's hearts in a unique way. Now, I want to say this very clear. My mom, my mother, is the best. She is one of the most wonderful, gentle, thoughtful, caring, self-sacrificial women I've ever met in my life. And she is a hero to me, and I love her. Having said that, when I stepped out of the locker room to, to play basketball or when I got up on stage for a play, the first question I asked myself is, is my dad here? Is my father here? And, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know all the reasons why that is. But for whatever reason, every child wants, he even lives for his father's or her father's approval. So, so what then about mothers? Is Paul ignoring mothers? Well, let's... Let's recognize the assumption that Paul makes. He's, he's assuming there's a Christian mother and a Christian father in the households he's talking to. That's who he's writing to. But that may not be your family. And if it's not this ideal, that's okay. Right? That's life. That's life. Like, if there's an area of my life that's a little closer to an ideal, trust me, there's another area in my life that is not close <laughs> to God's ideal. And it's probably an area of your life that you're much closer to an ideal. God understands all of that, guys. His grace is sufficient for that. If you're raising a child then without a father in the household, God knows you have a heavier role. He wants to shoulder that with you. Jesus, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. If you're raising a child with a distant father, 
They're just not so involved. They're, they're away, either emotionally or literally away quite a lot. You have a father who knows exactly what you need, and he cares for you in that. If, if you're raising your kids without a dad who can't bring them up on the Lord because he himself hasn't yet trusted the Lord, God's aware of that too. He's a father to your family. You keep praying for your husband and praying for him to come to know Christ. God knows all of these things, and his grace is sufficient. So, mothers, this message may be for you also. You may be shouldering more things, and God knows that too. But equally, just understand, I don't want to miss this opportunity to address fathers who are uniquely called to to clear away the brush, to make a way safe, and to help sacrificially lead their families. So here's the first thing that Paul says to fathers. First things I want to say to you guys, too, that you can follow this in your bulletin, too, with the notes on the back there. Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't provoke your kids to anger. So when Paul says this to fathers and to parents, sometimes in general, uh, to, to provoke meant to, to needle a person, to needle them until they respond. You know what that's like, right? We all know what that's like in our lives. So when someone needles us, they needle us, they, needle us they, they push buttons, they get to us in ways until we react. And why then would Paul warn of this since this would seem utterly foolish to want your children to needle them to the point so they become angry. No one wants an angry child. Can you imagine a parent who wants a frustrated fighter as a kid? Or a parent who acts themselves like a stubborn 10-year-old to get what they want so their kid follows along? Of course not. Yet, I can say this as a parent of two boys, I am guilty of needling my children. Some of us do this through... Well-meaning overprotection. You don't trust your kids yet to be independent. You question their judgment constantly, and you let them know about it as your kids get older. Sometimes we needle our kids by, by setting high expectations, but providing low encouragement in their lives. Right? So a young woman shared with me this week that she received a 98% on her exam. And upon hearing that, her mother's first reply was, well, what did you get wrong? What did you get wrong? <laughs> right? That's, that's high expectations, low encouragement. And that's a way that, how would you feel? You'd feel deflated. you maybe feel angry. Some of us provoke our children by not letting them be kids. By not letting them be kids. Not letting them grow up at a normal rate. To, you know, kind of like things that we think are kind of stupid and a waste of time. Have I felt that way before? Yes, <laughs> yes I have, to, to, to lose their allowance, to buy cringeworthy clothing uh, for whatever reason, you know, and, and, and we feel like, what, what is happening here? What is happening? And we don't just let our kids be kids, and we feel like we got to control them. And so the most important question we can ask, if, that's, if you can honestly raise your hand and say, yeah, I've, I've done that with my kids, I, I've needled them, I've provoked them, there are ways I've done that. The first step and the most important question we can ask is why? Like, what's happening in my heart that would drive me to do that toward my kids? And I think the, the biggest reason is misplaced goals. The misplaced goals we have in bringing up our kids. The most common of which, I think, is the misplaced goal of changed behavior. That we, we are motivated to see our kids change into the people we think they should be and their behavior. 
And this may be motivated by wanting our child to grow into an adult with the right values, the right conduct, all the right mannerisms, saying all the right things in their lives. Or we're motivated by comfort and convenience for us, right? A well-behaved child who's a self-starter and self-sufficient, that's easier for my life. I mean, I've definitely felt both those things before. I was thinking this week of all the different Pharisees that Jesus encounters in the Bible. Right? All those, those adults who are so rigid about the law and, and behavior. And it reminded me that all those Pharisees that Jesus encounters, we, we sometimes think of them as robots like or characters in a play, but they all had parents. They were all kids once. Remember that? Like Simon in Luke chapter 7, he's a Pharisee. He had parents. And he's sitting there with Jesus, and all he can think about is Jesus' behavior and the law. What do you think Simon's parents' goals were? What do you think his parents' goals were when raising him? My guess is a changed behavior. They wanted a good kid, a good Jew, a good citizen, a good student of a local rabbi. Not, not a child who has decided to give his heart to a good God, but a child who tries to make God happy with his good behavior. That's the kind of kid they were ra- raising. Yet they didn't realize they're going to fail because children fail with that high expectation and low encouragement. And they're going to get frustrated when they fail. They're not going to behave the way you want. They're going to do so oftentimes because they've been provoked to anger by us. If you're like me, and you've had, the, had, had a misplaced goal of wanting this changed behavior in your parents and wanting their behavior to change but not their heart, first step is to turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. Even now, to repent. Turn to Jesus, ask his forgiveness. And as we do so, we remember how our Father has parented us. How has he parented us? With self-sacrificial love. He gave his only one and, one and only son to, to restore us to himself. He begins teaching us, and when we fail, he gladly welcomes us back, doesn't he? He doesn't mold us into carbon copy rule followers, but he even gladly uses our uniqueness, uses our preferences to draw others to him, to be another representation of him in the world for his glory. We remember how our Father's been to us, even as we turn to Jesus again. I think the second step for parents, if that's you, if you feel like, yeah, I've kind of needled my kids. Second step is to adopt better goals for parenting. We've turned to Jesus. He's restored us to himself. And then Paul gives us a better alternative, right? He says, but, don't provoke your children to anger, but, look at that in verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word translated here, discipline, is a really tough word to capture in English. It doesn't just mean send your kids to the room or give them a spanking and that sort of thing. It means a kind of, of teaching mixed with correction in real life. Like real life, on-the-job teaching mixed with correction. And so here's how I'm summarizing this. A second step to sort of change our parenting ways would be to, to model, make our goal, to model accountability to Jesus and teach your kids about Jesus. Model accountability to Jesus and teach them about Jesus. I'll put this in even maybe more simple way. I think what Paul is envisioning here is parents, and especially their fathers, doing their best to lead their children like Jesus led his disciples. To lead their children like Jesus led his disciples, which was a mixture of accountability, right? Jesus gave encouragement with correction and teaching as well. 
That's what he did with his disciples. A mixture of you know, correction, encouragement, teaching. Think about, for example, the, uh, the disciple Peter. Think about his interactions with Jesus. All right, Jesus once asked the disciples a question, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus says next? He, he blesses Peter, and he, and he encourages him. He praises him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. How good must have that felt? And then, he, and then Jesus teaches him, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus continues to teach. He further teaches Peter about the foundation of the church. And when he's finished, Jesus goes on to teach about the suffering, death, and resurrection that he's going to experience. This time, Peter messes up. He tries to rebuke Jesus. As Jesus talks about his suffering and death at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Do you remember what Jesus does next? He corrects him. (laughs) I would say so. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are now not. Remember, he was, he was thinking about the things of the Lord. God had revealed to him this great truth. Then he says, now, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So you may wish to correct your children, and you should. You may not want to call them Satan. All right? That, that might be harsh parenting. <laughs> Don't follow that example of Jesus, most likely. You get the idea. Jesus asks questions. He wants to hear. He wants to draw out his disciples, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. He praises and encourages them when appropriate, and he corrects them when appropriate. Similarly, guys, as parents, we are called to teach our children about Jesus. Share with them, here's where I need Jesus, and here's where I see Jesus. Like, here's where I need Jesus. I I, I need him because I've sinned. To be honest with your kids about your struggles in life, Help, help them see you, ask for forgiveness. And then also... Share with your children where you see Jesus, answers to prayer, little joys in life to be thankful for, where you see Jesus in the Bible. We have age-appropriate Bibles on our back table where you can read the Bible with your kids every day and say, here's where I see Jesus in the Bible and in my own life. And when your kids get it, praise and encourage them. And when they don't, when they fail or fall short, you can correct them in love. Let me share with you one very normal life story that illustrates the kind of parenting that this might look like in real life. I heard a very simple story from a father that stuck with me. He was trying to teach his young son responsibility. So this father and his spouse would require this young son to call their parents up on the phone anytime he went to a buddy's house about two blocks away in the neighborhood. So the young son would get to his friend's house and he said, make sure you call us when you get there. So he went to his friend's house, and over and over again, his kid kept forgetting, getting the call. So he reminded him. He grew confident over time that, hey, you know, I don't need to call my parents anymore. I'm going to get there. Everything will be fine. So the second or third time he forgot, the father called to make sure he'd arrived. The parents told him next time it happened, you're going to have to call us, or you're going to have to come home. That's going to be your punishment. A few days later, the telephone again was silent. The father knew that for the child to learn, he'd have to be punished. A few seconds later, the father gets on the phone, starts, starts, to, starts to dial, but first prays. He prays for wisdom. And he heard, he seems like he heard 
the Lord say to him, treat him like I treat you. Treat your son like I treat you. So with that, father dials the number, phone rings one time, the dad hangs up. Seconds later, the father hears the phone ring. And the father says to his kid, hey, what took you so long to call? He said, ah, dad, I just started getting playing and I forgot. And he said, you know what? I'm glad you remembered. Have fun. Now, later on, the son came home, and the father shared with his son what he, what he figured out. He said, you know what, son? I often think of this with God. Sometimes I think God is waiting to punish us when we step out of line. But I wonder sometimes how much God rings the phone in our life, you know, hoping that we'll call back, that we'll phone home. So later that night, he shares that with his son. He shares about how Jesus sometimes sends us little short messages, short signals to get our attention. So we'll turn our hearts back to him. And what I loved about the stories is it's a very simple, realistic picture of a father who's engaged enough with his child to hold out a high standard for his child and yet hold up even higher grace, right? More patience, more love, more tenderness, right? He didn't say, forget the rules, forget the standard. No, he just held out more grace, more patience in his child's life. And in doing so, he got to teach his child a little bit more about Jesus. And I think that's the kind of thing we're called to be doing, fathers especially, but all of us as parents. So that concludes my address to you guys as parents. I uh, thank you guys for being so attentive. But as you see, we have some new guests.